Hello, and welcome to the Portlet Podcast, a podcast coming to you from the Portland Public Library in Portland, Maine. Portland Public Library has hosted writers for over 30 years coming to talk about their new works. Now a conversation series, we host writers in long-form conversation with a fellow writer or community partner to explore themes in the book, the writing process, life, and more. Catch up on all of our Portlet podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. Let's listen. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Literary Very Late Lunch. I'm Stephanie Manning, a very proud member of the Portland Public Library's Board of Trustees and a co-producer of Harvest on the Harbor. I love it when my worlds collide. Tonight's one of those. For those of you unfamiliar, Harvest on the Harbor has been Portland's annual food and drink festival for the past 14 years. You're joining us on the second day of the festival, which this year looks a little different than in years past. I bet you haven't heard that before. We are slowly coming back after a year away with virtual events like this one, fringe events at locations around Portland and two vaccine required in-person events at Omain Studios on Danforth Street this weekend. Tomorrow night, in conjunction with the Maine Distillers Guild, we're hosting a Meet Your Cocktail Maker event. And on Saturday, in collaboration with the Maine Oyster Company, we have Portland's only Oyster Fest. Event details can be found on harvestontheharbor.com. And if you're interested in those events, hurry because tickets are very limited. I want to thank our friends at the Portland Public Library for partnering with us to bring you tonight's event. Margaret, Carl, and Don, we are very much looking forward to the conversation about this gem of a cookbook. I thank you all for being here tonight to make introductions. I'm gonna hand things off to Becca Starr from the library. Hi everyone, thank you so much for coming. Uh, Welcome, Um, my name is Becca Starr. For those of you who haven't met me in the library, I'm the literature and language librarian over at Portland Public Library. So you might see me downtown sometimes. I'm really delighted that uh, the library has partnered with Harvest on the Harbor for today's late literary lunch. Margaret Hathaway and Carl Schatz will be in conversation with Don Lindgren about their book, The Maine Bicentennial Community Cookbook, which we have. All right, I'm gonna introduce our writers and then we'll go ahead and get started. Margaret Hathaway and Carl Schatz are the wife and husband team behind six books on food and farming, including the memoir, The Year of the Goat, a Guide Living with Goats, two volumes of the Portland, Maine Chef's Table Cookbook, and most recently, the Maine Bicentennial Community Cookbook. Margaret is a writer and goat farmer, and in addition to being the author of six books, she is a regular contributor to Taproot Magazine, lovely, and has worked in cookbook publishing and as manager of New York's landmark Magnolia Bakery. Carl is a photographer, a journalist, and a goat farmer as well. He has worked as a digital producer at ABC Television, a photo editor at Time Magazine, and as director of Aurora Photos. Since 2005, the couple has lived with their three daughters on Ten Apple Farm, their homestead, an agro-tourism destination in Southern Maine, where they raise dairy goats, tend a large garden and small orchard, lead goat hikes, teach workshops, and operate a guest home. Sounds great, I'm sold. You can visit them at 10applefarm.com or on Instagram at 10applefarm. And with us also is Don Lindgren. Uh, Don is an antiquarian bookseller specializing in print 
a manuscript book about food and drink. His, his book selling business, Rabelais Incorporated, acquires, researches, and sells rare books, manuscripts, ephemera, and other materials related to culinary history. He has served as a governor of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America, a lovely resource I love to point people to, and as a member of the International League of Antiquarian Booksellers. He has lectured or presented at the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery, the Colorado Antiquarian Book Seminar, and the Rare Book School's Boston Seminar. In 2019, he published the first part of a multi-volume exploration of the American Community Cookbook um, titled Unexcelled. I hope I'm saying that right. <laughs> American Cookbooks of Community and Place. Uh, visit him at rabelaisbooks.com. And thank you guys so much for joining us and uh, go ahead and take it away. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank, thank you. Um, it's great to be here. And, um, and we've done a number of these uh, sort of Zoom conversations about the Bicentennial uh, Community Cookbook. And we thought we'd do something a little bit different this evening since this was billed as a, a conversation. We thought we'd try to make it a little bit more conversational and, and less presentational. I don't think that's a word, but we'll use it anyway. Um, and so uh, we're gonna, in the past, we've spent a lot of time sort of building up to uh, some of the bigger ideas that have come out of, uh, out of the creation of this cookbook. And we're gonna, I think, spend less time talking about its origins and, and more time trying to get to some of that um, more, uh, some of the takeaways that, that we've had. But we probably need a, a yeah, quick, I think quick explanation quick, of the book. You know, if, if you haven't, if you, if you don't have the book or you haven't seen the book, um, so this, this is the, the cookbook and, um, and basically it, it, uh, it started as an idea that Margaret and I had to do a, a cookbook, um, celebrating Maine food for the, for the bicentennial. We went to Dawn, uh, we had the idea of doing this sort of a statewide, uh, cookbook collecting recipes from, from people all over the state. And, and one of the things we really wanted to do with the project was to raise money for a charitable cause. And. Uh, we we went to Don because he's the cookbook expert in in our world, and we told him what we wanted to do, and he said it sounds like uh, you want to do a community cookbook, and we said sure. What's a community cookbook? And he explained to us that uh, a community cookbook uh, really has um, three uh, main uh, pillars that kind of define a, a community cookbook, and that's that the the recipes. Uh, come from a uh, defined community, that the cookbook itself uh, represents a defined community, that the, the recipes are collected from within that community, and that the cookbook uh, serves some sort of charitable cause uh, within that, that community, um, which all of those things uh, held true for this project. And, um, and so the cookbook uh, was published in uh, 2020, came out in 2020. Um, it's been really kind of uh, uh, a runaway success. You know, we really didn't expect it to be um, to, to sell or, or be as, uh, as well received as it was. Um, we're in our fifth printing now, I think. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and just the, the content of the cookbook, it's roughly 200 recipes drawn from all 16 counties in Maine. 
um, from home chefs, from the governor gave us a forward, from all of our senators and representatives, um, from some famous people, and tell stories about people's lives yeah. as well as recipes of what they cook at home. Yeah, the real heart of the cookbook as it turned out, and I don't think we, when we started the project, knew that this was, that this was going to be uh, the case, but the real heart of it is, is the stories that came to us from uh, everyday Mainers, from families um, all over the state, and their personal food stories, their family food stories and food histories. And, um, and it was really a, a, a remarkable um, project to be part of, to work on. And, and $2, did you say already? $2 from each book sold is going to um, organizations fighting hunger around the state. And to date, we've distributed more than $15,000. So it's been um, really rewarding to be able to be part of the solution yeah. to, to hunger. So. And um, yeah, and, and out of that and out of this, you know, there have been other sort of community cookbook projects that, that have been born. I mean, Dawn, and we'll get to uh, uh, Dawn um, in, in a minute, but, uh, but together, the three of us, in addition to doing this first, the Bicentennial Community Cookbook, um, we started uh, a podcast about community cookbooks. Um, uh, based on a lot of the, the research and collection that, that Don has done already um, called Cooking is Community. Find that wherever you get your podcasts. And, uh, and equally exciting um, is the sequel uh, to the cookbook that we're working on right now, which will be called Maine, Maine Community Cookbook Volume 2, uh, 200 More Recipes Celebrating Home Cooking in the Pine Tree State. So that we've just finished the um, collection of recipes. Uh, the uh, We've received, I think- uh, Close to 300. About 300 recipes from and people all over the state. They're fabulous. It's so exciting. We've spent the day kind of wading through a lot of the materials yeah. and they're it's really wonderful. Um, and, uh, and so that will be out next April. Um, uh, hopefully, no, yes, hopefully in time for Mother's Day. That's the goal that will yeah. be available. Assuming there are no, you know, yeah. bottle, <laughs> not, Assuming there's not a, a, another, another pandemic. pandemic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think we, this is uh, supposed to be a conversation. So um, we'd like to invite Don into the conversation uh, at this point. And, you know, one of the things that's been really exciting for us working on this project with Don is how educational it's been for us. I mean, Don has spent, before we kind of got involved in community cookbooks, Don has been collecting community cookbooks. I mean, he's been, uh, you know, working within the sphere of antiquarian uh, books uh, around food and um, cookbooks and also ephemera. And uh, so it's been really educational for us. And I guess, you know, Don, I'm, I'm always curious, you know, you came in with a lot of uh, history with collecting community cookbooks. And I guess my question uh, is, you know, in terms of working, you know, being part of this, this new project, the Bicentennial Community Cookbook, and now the, the second volume, I'm wondering if it, if it changed anything about the way that you look at community cookbooks or um, at the, the collecting that you've done or uh, the, the sort of scholar, scholarly research that you've been, uh, been doing. Um, yeah, um, thank you, Carl and Margaret. And 
thank you, Harvest on the Harbor and Portland Public Library. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. Um, it's a it's a really interesting. It, it's it's a immediate yes. It has changed things for me, uh, and and um, it's it's really been an eye opener because I spent so much time studying community cookbooks from the sort of material evidence of community cookbooks and then whatever whatever other historical information I could I could find in in printed sources. Um, but to actually be part of the process is, a, is an entirely different um, privilege, actually. And I, I just want to say, I'm going to back up my story a hair. Um, I didn't like community cookbooks <laughs> 15 years ago. Um, I didn't know anything about them either. But I, I didn't, I really thought that, you know, these, I immediately thought that there are these books with these plastic comb bindings or spiral metal bindings. Um, and uh, as a bookseller, you can't put them on a shelf and see the title most of the time. Um, and it's also hard to tell, like, which ones are good. Like, if it's not from your town, like, why would I pick this one over that one? So, uh, and I wasn't going to cook everything out of every book. So there's no way for me to really tell that they were interesting. Um, and at some point I had, I had one of those moments and I've had maybe three or four moments. Well, I'll say four now and, and I'll, won't bother you with what they were, but the, one of those moments was realizing that community cookbooks were really interesting to me all of a sudden. I was like, why, you know, I've ignored these things forever. Um, and, and just so we know what we're talking about, Carl gave the, the definition of the sort of three pillars of it's from a specific community, the recipes are drawn from that community, and then it has a, some sort of fundraising or charitable purpose uh, through the sale of the book. Um, but we, we may actually think of them as under different names. I mean, people call them church books, fundraising cookbooks, uh, those spiral bound books. I mean, there are, there are like six or seven different names people use. Um, and as I started looking at them and collecting them, and I was, of course, focused on the main books because that was mo I was seeing more of them than I was seeing anything else. And, you know, my collecting of them was a series of incorrect assumptions uh, that the books, once they're spiral bound, they're not so interesting. Well, I learned that that wasn't the case, uh, that um, the recipes are, are rather ordinary. Well, I absolutely know that's not the case. Um, and, you know, that the, everything interesting stopped in, say, post-war. Everything after that is just stuff being rehashed, and that's completely not the case, and I won't explain exactly why that, because that's stuff leading up to, the, to this project, but that when I realized that they were, they were really worthy of study and really kind of core to the whole American cook, cookery experience and the way that more Americans experience cookery through these books than through any of the books we know about uh, um, through, you know, celebrity, you know, through food TV and, and celebrity stuff. Um, my, my main collection now, and I main with, with, with an E, um, has almost a thousand cookbooks related to the state of Maine. And the vast majority of those cookbooks are community cookbooks by like, I'm going to say it's 200 to one or something like that. Um, it's, it's a very, very small number of books that are single author books or produced by a restaurant or any of that sort of thing compared to 
the, the, the books that are produced by groups of people coming together uh, because of their synagogue or their church or their grange or their involvement in a school auxiliary or a hospital auxiliary. Um, so there's, you know, there's, it's, they're just a major part of American history. And so I've been working on this thing and then get involved uh, in, a, in a small way in Carl and, uh, and, and, and Margaret's book project. And the, for me, the most amazing thing was it was just this immersion in the process. And so all of these questions about some of the eccentricities, the weird little things you find in these books were suddenly uh, at least partially explained. I won't, I won't say it was always completely explained, but you know, why are there three recipes for blueberry cake in a book? Like we would never put three recipes for the same dish in a in a in a an ordinary cook in a you know in a, pu a publisher's cookbook it would never happen, but in community cookbooks you see things like that all the time, and then there we were with a pile of recipes that had been submitted to us, and there were three recipes for this and four recipes for that, and and we didn't even have the personal connections to these people that we'd understand the you know, the, the long debate between these two women and you had to put their recipes in no matter what. We didn't have that problem, but we knew that it was probably a real thing. So, you know, there are many other things I could tell you as examples, but the idea of being part of the process of compiling the book was, was one of the most exciting things. And it's, it really has changed the way I look back on uh, the books I've already worked on, books that are, have nothing to do with this project. Um, it's, it's informed a big part of my, uh, um, of, of just the, the way I look at all cookbooks. Uh, so, so it's been great. I, I'm really thrilled <laughs> to be part of it. Uh, you know, Margaret, uh, you know, what, one of the things that was left out of, of the sort of introduction and in your bio is that you got your start, um, at Clarkson Potter, which is a, a cookbook a publisher, um, and have ghostwritten a couple of, of cookbooks, uh, and of course, um, written, uh, several, uh, a couple others, um, that are, would be considered as, as you know, not community cookbooks, um, more, uh, sort of, you know, what you would find in a, a bookstore, uh, if you're in the cookbook section. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm wondering if you're, you know, working on now these community cookbooks, um, if you're, uh, you know, how your perception of like what makes a good recipe or, you know, what, what, uh, it, you know, if something's a good recipe, has, has that changed in the process of, of working on these books? Yeah, you know, I think the other books that I've worked on over the years, starting with Clarkson Potter, and I was there right at the beginning of the Celebrity Chef Food Network, everything had a TV show attached to it. Like that was when I started my career and it did not stick working in an office as clearly I raise goats now, but, um, but everything was about the visuals and about being as sort of fancy and unusual as possible. Mm -hmm. I think even, even when recipes are sort of aiming for humility, there, there's still a layer of things being really sort of beautiful mm -hmm. and, and working on these community cookbooks, so much is not about presentation, is the antithesis of the sort of Instagram world that we live in now. That, that you know, what 
in the late nineties was food network has now shifted into Instagram food influencers. Um, you know, these community cookbooks, it's, it's about the, the feeling it's a lot of these recipes are about stretching your food budget as uh, widely as you can. And there's something really touching about that and about how these recipes, you know, the, the big part of the community cookbooks that we've put together are the stories, which don't generally appear in a community cookbook. There's usually a lot less of a, a story attached to each recipe, but in the ones that we've been putting together, the story is half, half of what's interesting. Um, and, and the, the people and the associations that they have with these very humble foods, um, and foods that got them through hard times and that they associate with difficult times, but also perseverance, that has really changed the way I think about what food is worth cooking, what food I want to serve to our kids. Um, it's, it's confirmed in me that like food is so much more nourishing on a large scale than just what you put in front of you. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, I think, you know, what, what, one thing that's, uh, that's really jumped out at me working on these projects is how everyone has a, everyone has a food story. You yeah. know, everyone has yeah. some, there's some food story that everyone has that, that connects them. There's some food that they eat or some recipe that connects them to people to a place. Well, our kids, Charlotte, our, our eldest daughter the other day called it a Ratatouille moment because there's the, the movie Ratatouille, the cartoon, and there's the food critic who's so, you know, snooty, but then he eats the Ratatouille and it transports him back to his, his childhood. childhood. And I was amazed that she coined that little phrase. Yeah. I liked it. Right. Um, but I feel like that's, I mean, that's what this, like the, the, when we were putting together the bison, the, the cookbook, like that's what people were sending us. It's 200 Ratatouille moments. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it's just, I mean, I think that, you know, when we were, you know, putting together the chef's table books, which mm -hmm. is, you know, these, you know, chef, the, Portland has this incredible, incredible food scene and chefs are doing amazing yeah. work and, those books, and the food is we, so, it's so delicious. And beautiful, like and beautifully beautiful. plated, you know, pro professional chefs put on a beautiful yeah. spread. And, and yet there's, you know, all this, as you sort of said, humble food, but it's, it's just, it feels so full it of It feels equally meaning. important. Yeah. So yeah. equally important. And and it made me think about, you know, just, you know, kind of priorities and what, you know, what we sort of put, you know, importance on and, 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 um, and it's, it's really sort of changed the way I think about, about food and what, what kind of, what kind of food is, is important and meaningful. You know, there's add something, yeah. something there. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. And, and, and it's, it maybe it hit me in a slightly different way, but I'm so used to looking at, at New England cookbooks or early American cookbooks or Maine cookbooks and, and seeing them in terms of, oh, this recipe came from this English cookbook that was published 50 years earlier. And then they swapped out a couple of ingredients. And, you know, I'm seeing these things as sort of uh, like the genealogy of the recipes, mm -hmm. at, which is totally valid. And it, it's a real, it's a good thing to do. But what the, what, what the, 
participation in the community cookbook did for me was to ground the recipes in the personal stories of the people who sent them to us, which you don't see, as, as you said, you don't see that in a lot of cookbooks, but we were getting all this, these backstories for everything. And so it wasn't about whether this recipe is descended from, you know, uh, a recipe in Hannah Gloss or Mrs. Raffold or any of those English cookbooks that came across and, and got adapted into, um, into New England cuisine. It, it's about somebody making this dish because a member of their family had passed away and that this was a dish that they knew they loved and that this was what they would feed the family afterwards. Or this is something that, that there, there's a recipe in, in the, one of the historical recipes that we included where somebody uh, described making a very simple thing or something I think of as very simple, but it was like endless work of taking something out onto the patio and letting it sit overnight and bringing it back in and into inside and then stirring and then skimming something off and putting it back on the patio and bringing it indoors again. And I'm thinking this is like this beautiful description of the true labor involved in producing the dish. It's not just the recipe. It's about the daily life of this person. So all of these stories that we, we read, whether it was about the history in their family of when this dish was used, or whether it was like, we only prepared this once a week because of that low tide that happened that revealed the such and such. I mean, it's, it's, it was, it really, it reminded me that those recipes were grounded in everyday daily activities and in real people. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that that really like stuck with me um, was how I, and made me like sort of understand how important community cookbooks can be, you know, both sort of culturally and um, as a way of of transmitting uh, recipes and and from person to person and and uh, and family to family. Um, was how many recipes were submitted for the cookbook that came from other community cookbooks that people were submitting as their family recipe, but had, but they were, but it had come to their family through another community cookbook um, that had been given to them or, or, or through a newspaper clipping or that someone handed them. Right. Yeah. And that's, that goes to the heart of, of, of one of the things that as I've been working on my, my own, you know, sort of research project on com community cookbooks in general, I I'm realizing I, I, I haven't quite like said this out loud too many times, but I, I really think that the community cookbook is like the true heart of American cookery. And you can, you, there are a lot of reasons why. Um, and, and I'll just say that the charitable aspect of the books is something that shows up in the earliest American cookery books. And you don't find that charitable aspect of cookbooks in the French cookbooks. And you don't find that charitable aspect in the 18th century in the English cookbooks, except in like a word or two every once in a while. But the very first American cookery book was Buy an Orphan for Orphans, Amelia wow. Simmons' American cookery book in 1796. And it wasn't a fundraiser. It wasn't trying to raise money for anything, but it was a book that was specifically created to give skills to people who needed the skills. So that they would have a better life. And so she's identified the community and it was orphans. And that, that word is a, a very loaded word and has, it meant a slightly different thing back then than it does to us now, but the, that's the community. 
and she identifies herself as part of the community. She's gathered the recipes, but not from that community, of course. And then it's being used for uh, a social purpose, I'll say, not a charitable purpose. And you see that all the way through American cookery books before we get to 1870, when the first real American community cookbook arrives that fully meets that definition. So, so some sort of social or charitable purpose has been there the whole time and continues on. And yet we don't really recognize like how that's a, a major thread in American cookbook history. And it's, it has a lot, so much to do with the way we think of, of, of food here, or at least I hope it does because it's, it's a, it's a, a kind uh, way to think about food, which, which yeah. is good. Um, and one other thing I wanted to say, you, you mentioned compile, and then I got completely off the track with Amelia Simmons. But I, I, one other reason that the that the these these books represent the community cookbook and the way it comes together, including the way it, it's coming together for volume two. And this is just some of the stuff that was <laughs> sent to me. So so that there's an online facility to collect the recipes, but. This being a community cookbook project, a lot of people don't have computers and they send it this way. Uh, and those come to my mailbox. And these came from all over the state. There's one from Florida, but the person was just there, but they, but they live in, in Maine. But this is very much exactly the way that cookbooks historically, and when I say that, I'm really meaning like back into medieval times, um, were assembled. And I, I've been happy enough to deal with books over, over the years that were like that. And this is a this is a, a first of Fanny Farmer that's a, in miserable condition, but it's partially in miserable condition because the first 60 pages of it or so are, are loose recipes that were sent to this person that the person has compiled from all these sources. And even the title page of the book, which I'm hoping you can read this. See, you don't have to read it. You just need to see it. It exists. Uh, you see, how it's been written ent entirely over the title page. They've used every little inch of blank space in this book to collect the recipes that they got from friends and other family members and visitors or from newspapers and magazines. It doesn't matter where they got them from. That's not, it's not, it's not a matter of originality. It's a matter that these were the ones they noticed that they wanted to keep and they wanted to try and they wanted to make for their family or for a special event and then pass it to another through a future community cookbook. Yeah. Yeah. And that's basically what e each and every one of these community cookbooks does is it, it takes all those recipes that people feel are the imp those important recipes and it's, and they put it in there and they're sharing it with their neighbors and then someone else agrees, right? Someone else cooks that recipe yeah. from that community cookbook. And then that becomes, they take ownership and they, maybe they change it a little bit. They, you know, they adjust the ingredients or the instructions or whatever, and they really, and they make it their own. Well, and we've seen that, you know, time and time again with the recipes that have been submitted for both these books. Yeah. One of the most charming stories that didn't make it into the first book, but is going to be in the, the second is a woman going step-by-step step through Marjorie Standish's blueberry cake and writing about how her grandmother made it and how, you know, which bowl you use and which scraper you use and describing the kitchen that she's in and also providing the recipe. And it's just wonderful because it's so evocative of a, a certain place and also, you know, 
shows how she made this cake. Yeah. yeah, there's there's one of the one of the recipes in 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 this grouping here, and I'm not going to mention the person by name because because we haven't had the time to sit down and and really decide yeah. what goes where. But it it taught it it it's a, a fairly simple uh, cookie recipe, and she describes in length how this was a recipe that her mother made for her, but she was uh, she was too young to actually help her mother make this before. Uh, I guess her mother stopped making it at a certain point, but she, she never learned how to make it herself. And her mother's recipe was lost. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody recorded it within the family, but she Googled it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, I, at first I sort of, I almost gasped at that, not because it's bad. I use, I use online recipes all the time myself, but she, you know, she was like, I, I love this recipe and I can't find it. I don't have it. I'm going to try to recreate it. And she went online and, and found uh, uh, what was as close as, as she needed to make her happy. And, and I thought that's, you know, that's like this, it's the same process, but now you're bringing in this extremely modern uh, information source. It's no, it's no different from any other information source. It's like, there's the recipe I want, grab it, put it in the book. Yeah. You know, a, a similar story, but it's actually about our cookbook. Um, we got an email from someone who her distant cousin had submitted their, was it grandmother or great grandmother's recipe to the Bicentennial cookbook. And she hadn't tasted it since her grand, grandmother, great grandmother died. And she was able to make it through the recipe that someone else in her family who she really wasn't that connected to um, submitted to the cookbook. So I don't know that analog Google. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that she, she was going to claim the recipe was hers and it had been. No, oh, it no. was a, it was a lovely story, <laughs> yeah. not a bitter one. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's something else that I, I think we were all uh, at various points in this process. And especially once we started doing the podcast, mm -hmm. you know, there were a couple other elements of the community cookbook that were, the, the general community cookbook that were incorporated into the main bicentennial community cookbook. And one of them was advertising. Mm -hmm. And you see advertising in a lot of books. And when I look at the advertising in the historical books, I think, oh, this is part of the mechanism of crowdfunding so that they can pay for the, the book up front and the printer and the binder do what they need to do. And then that all the money that they make selling it can go to fundraising. And that's largely true. But what was what I was overlooking, um, unless, except for some glaring examples, but what I was mostly overlooking was how that like landscape of advertisers gives a real sense of a place at a time. And um, I, which was the one, uh, it, it, um, I want something, it was like on Moosehead or something, uh, you guys, the, we did it for the podcast and there were, um, there was like, log rolling equipment and oh, oh it was orno the orno okay. yeah the orno yeah. cookbook from orno cookbook. yeah and i actually have one one of the editions of the orno <laughs> cookbook i don't remember if this is the the one we did or this is the one after you That's also notice that later later yeah. you see how that you see that this book is this is almost every copy i've ever seen of this book it's crooked like this and i, I kind of love that <laughs> um but but within the advertising we got this amazing 
picture painted of what that piece of the community looked like um, at that moment. And sometimes they just seem like all the other communities, but sometimes you really get a sense that it's a different sort of town and uh, something, you know, that, that things that things there are, are represented by those advertisers. You know, with, with that one, and I know that's not what we're talking about tonight, but one of the things that surprised me about the ads in the Orno cookbook were like, there was gender equity in, in the community. There were women owned and run businesses. And there were things that I really would never, ever in a million years have assumed about Orono, Maine in 1906 that were like displayed in the advertisings there, in the advertisements there. And I think that that is another just fascinating glimpse into what communities are doing is looking yeah. at the, the advertising. Yeah, I think and I think, you know, the one thing to remember, um, and I, I know, Don, you've often pointed this out, is that, you know, nothing is a complete picture of any location sort of food history. You know, if you look at just one piece, like if you just look at community cookbooks, that tells one story. If you were to just look at, you know, menus from a place and a time, it would it would tell a completely different story of, yes. of yeah. you know, what the food, you know, being cooked is. And if you looked at, I don't know what another thing would be, uh, <laughs> but uh, but but I think that you know, once you start, you know, but if you certainly if you don't look at community cookbooks, if you're sort of trying to figure out like what is um, you know, what is the food history of Maine or what is the, or even the current, you know, not history, but, you know, what is Maine food today? Mm -hmm. You know, if you ignore things like, you know, if you were just to look at Portland restaurants and say, this is what Maine food is today, it, it, you'd be missing a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that, that, um, that's been, you know, that we try to, to do with the with the bicentennial community cookbook and and with the second volume too is to to show another glimpse of what what main food is today not not just maybe what we think of main food and, and maybe i don't know margaret or or don um you know has working on these community cookbooks changed the way that you think about main food oh um yeah, I, well, yes, um, in a couple ways, and I'm not going to be able to elaborate on all of them, but um, going back to the thing I said earlier, that the it, that, that, that work on this project grounded my thoughts in the, uh, in the sort of in the personal, you know, it, that it's that, that I need to remember every time I'm looking at a recipe that's in a book that's there for a reason because some somebody put it there because it had a it was a personal reason it wasn't just because it was taken out of this other cookbook or that's that's you know that's a thing but it's it's more important to look for um that more specific personal thing if it's if i can if it's there if it's if there's something to read um and while i don't want to overemphasize the humble aspect of the community cookbooks or the the daily aspect or the ordinary aspect because i think that a lot of the recipes are chosen to go into community cookbooks because they're somewhat aspirational which is of course not the same as humility uh 
you know, people want to show off. And if, if you if you were to look at the recipes broadly, like what categories of stuff, and we, we saw this, you know, there's never a roast chicken. There, you know, there's never a simple fish dish. Uh, there may be, but not very, very often. But there are a lot of pies and a lot of cakes and a lot of candy and a lot of preserves. And, you know, all of this stuff that takes... Uh, that, that takes some amount of accuracy and precision. And that's because that's kind of competitive stuff. That's what you get the blue ribbon for at the, at the, at the, the county fair or the Grange fair. So there's, there's a, there is always a sort of aspirational aspect to it. And, and also that community cookbooks can be from every piece of society. Um, I, I've never seen a, a community cookbook from Maine like one I saw from uh, one I have from Connecticut, which is a Rolls Royce Owners Club community cookbook, <laughs> and it's a bunch of it was produced in the late 1970s, and it's a bunch of old white guys wearing the kind of suits you'd expect them to be wearing in the 1970s, standing in front of their Rolls Royces with the worst possible recipes you could imagine, just like, you know, it, it's like everything was hamburger helper and champagne, you know, it was. But but every type of group, every type of group of people that gets together and, and forms a, a, a community group of some sort eventually puts one of these things out. And that's that's another awesome thing when you see all of the different types of, of, of social organizations within the state of Maine or, or within any locale. Um. Do we want to open this up to questions from that other people have? Should we do that now? I see. Sure. Yeah, we've got we've got a bunch of questions. Oh, um, good. Yes. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, John, I I just wanted to say um, uh, to your point about the sort of like niche cookbooks. Um, I invite anyone to come. I know our hours are are very limited right now, but I would invite anyone here. Um, to visit our Portland room, which is at the main branch, um, because you'll find some real fun niche cookbooks there. A lot of a lot of church cookbooks that I found in there. So, um, so yeah, and and it's open. It's open to the public. Uh, we have a lovely archivist there who can put things in your hands. So um, so please feel free if that's of interest to anybody. And um, I'm going to start with uh, a question from uh, a participant. Uh, that goes to Don. Um, Don, in your in your bio, you mentioned that you have um, ephemera related to uh, to cooking, and uh, we have somebody who's wondering if you could expound on that a little bit. Sure. Um, the general def definition of ephemera is is, is printed, and uh, it's usually printed material. There is some manuscript ephemera, but it, it's uh, printed potentially manuscript material that. Um, was not was never intended for long-term use because so that's like the to me that's like a very if you think about it it's like what what does that mean well a menu is a great example people produce menus and they're not intended to let they're not intended to be used in their primary function forever they might last for a really long time but they don't they're never intended to be uh um you know used at the same restaurant you know for for 10 years or 20 years the way a book is I would argue that community cookbooks are not ephemera uh, because they're, they are intended to have long-term use and people kept them in the kitchens and, and we know they use them. 
But ephemera in general can include all sorts of things. So there are some, you know, beautifully printed things like, oh, uh, well, like menus, like grocery bags. I, I have a friend who's a very serious librarian at a major historical institution that it, her personal collection is the history of the shopping bag. And I've, I've contributed some pretty cool things there, but she's interested in the paper and the printing and the, the design shapes and sizes. Um, I, I have uh, some never used 19th century ice cream cartons that have, you know, that have like wire handles and they've never been opened up into their full form and toothpaste, uh, toothpick boxes from the state of Maine, uh, original watercolor designs for what would be uh, used for this. And you have things like labels and business cards and trade cards and all kinds of advertising materials. Um, it's one of the beautiful things about food is that it produces even more ephemera than other fields. Like there's ephemera in every field you could think of. But um, I had a trade catalog of straws and it was just straws with printed stuff on the paper right? That's all it was in there. Each one was attached to this little thing. Um, and uh, trade cards of fancy napkins or trade catalogs with fancy napkins, silk napkins or paper napkins printed with the name of your bar, bar coasters. So anyway, all of these things are printed materials that if you were to find really nice examples of, of you know, nice, clean, unused examples, um, it contributes to the history of, of food. It's part of the material culture. Um, and it's, you know, it's primary stuff. There's, there's a guy who made a magnificent collection of McDonald's wrappers, uh, which on its, it, which were all new and never been used, but he had thousands and thousands and thousands of hit every single Big Mac and every single quarter pounder wrapper and the thing that goes in it in the box. And that, that collection ended up being a major uh, collection that McDonald's Corporation purchased. But it's, it's all of that other printed stuff that's not intended for long-term use. Short answer. <laughs> I have um, another question, which is for, um, for anyone. Um, did you feel you had to balance the recipes from specific categories? Like you were getting um, so many from Episcopalian cookbooks, so many from the junior league, et cetera. How, what was that? What was that like in, um, in any of your experiences to put that together in a community cookbook? Well, I think, you know, we try to balance, we sort of set the, the table of contents, like what the categories would be. And then we're trying to balance within those categories and trying not to be repetitive unless it's absolutely necessary, which sometimes it is. There are a couple instances where there are, you know, two variations on a similar recipe. Um, interestingly, we did not have, like thinking of like Episcopalian cookbooks or, or various, um, various other community cookbooks, I don't think we had a glut of any certain community. I think we, no. we had a pretty, Organically, it was just an even distribution. There were, in the first book, we had a number of venison mincemeat recipes came in. And, and that was, you know, presented some challenges because essentially, like, there's really only one way to make it. Although now, like, if I put that out there, we'll, we'll get, get more venison mincemeat recipes. <laughs> but, um, you know, we had to pare things down uh, considerably 
to, to just the one. I think the, I think the in terms that. of balance, I think the, the one thing we tried hardest to balance was where the recipes were coming from, which parts of the state and, and just mm -hmm. wanting to make sure that that uh, the state was, that all parts of the state were represented, uh, um, not not equally necessarily because the population is- I think, is, I think you, uh, you made a list of like proportionally. Proportionally. So yeah. we did, you know, we looking at, you know, where the, I mean, the majority of the, of the recipes in the cookbook are from Southern Maine, just because that's where the population was. But we did look kind of county by county at, a percentage of population and we tried as best we could to make sure that the number of recipes in the cookbook from each county were representative of the population uh, relative to the rest of the state. So. And, and in some cases there were populations that we know are significant in Maine, but who hadn't organically submitted recipes, yeah. both to the Bicentennial cookbook and to the new one. We've, we've learned subsequently um, of there was just an article in the paper, what, about a month ago about a woman who was a Chinese immigrant who was in Portland in the 50s and she was named mother of the year by, who was president then? Was it like Truman? There was a picture yeah. of her with like best Truman. And she was, she was a laundress on Forest Avenue and we've reached out to her family and have a recipe that she made that will be in the, the new cookbook. But we... Carl is from Maine, I'm from away, but we had no idea that there was a significant Chinese population in Portland in the 1950s. And so as we learn more about the populations that have been here and the various communities that are here, we're trying to reach out to them um, to make sure that there's representation in, in this book. That's actually a good illustration of the books versus menus thing. If if you were to look at the cookbooks, no, you wouldn't you wouldn't see um, a Chinese uh, American community represented with specific books historically in the state of Maine. Um, but if you looked at menus, you'd see that there were a number of Chinese restaurants in Portland and Bangor and Lewiston um, as as early as the 1910s. And, and so, you know, you could, you, you, that's a good example of, of getting two different ideas about what the food, what, what the food world of Maine was at a, a different moment by looking at the different stuff. Mm -hmm. um, we, we also were able to fill some holes or gaps um, with historical recipes, which were only 10% or so of, of, of volume one and will probably be about the same. But when we looked at what we had geographically, when we looked at what we had for categories, I think candy was actually a cat. We got like one you know, person yeah. the candy and that's a traditional community cookbook category. And we had one. So we added, you know, two historical ones. So we had enough for, for, for there to be a little place, uh, a little, a little bit of stuff. But the, um, that, that was one of the ways we were able to look at the historical books was to, to pick them from different, different uh, decades also. So they were coming from different times, different geographies, and different categories of dishes. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Awesome. I'm going to have um, Aaron, who's our uh, science and technology librarian over at the Portland Public Library, close us out with this question. <laughs> Thanks, Becca. Health and science. <laughs> our, our colleague Casey does technology. I'll leave that to him. Um, for whatever reason, because of health or because of science, I am uh, the person who buys our current cookbooks. Um, and we have a great collection, obviously, including the Maine Bicentennial Community Cookbook. Um, 
Well, my question has to do with something you touched on, which is the way that um, earlier recipes and earlier cookbooks end up in these in kind of community cookbooks in general, um, and maybe maybe in this book. Um, and even more than that, you know, colonial cookbooks or recipes might draw on, you know, English um, recipes and cookbooks from from earlier than that. But something that I've seen in a lot of community cookbooks is stuff that's pretty recognizable starting to come. Uh, you tell me when, Don, but I, I want to say in the 20s or 30s from, you know, like the back of the, you know, Campbell soup can, you know, or the Crisco tub. Um, and in my own family history, there's a there's a big Christmas cookie um, tradition. And there are there are cookies that that to me are my great grandma's recipes, right? And that's what I was introduced to as this is great grandma's cookies, right? And then as you just scratch the surface, it's like, and she found that it was on a butter container in 1928. <laughs> and then that's a family tradition now. So I guess what I'm asking about is the way that um, uh, that culture of taking other recipes and making them part of the community cookbook um, in a way kind of subverts um, copyright or ownership but also the way that once you get into the 20th century, it, you know, is that something that nationalizes the culture or, you know, you, you might've been borrowing from different cookbooks in new England than in the Southeast um, in yeah, 1850 or 1850 or 1890. But by 1950, everybody's got the same Crisco container. So they all start making the same butter cookies. Yeah. Right? It's, not butter. it's a fantastic question. And there's so much, there's so many different layers to that. The um, you were, you were talking about how like the nationalization of things over time, it happens a lot earlier than that. It, and, and, and I'm going to say that it actually starts to happen very close to the beginning of community cookbooks. You have 1870 is the first one, but the, the American centennial 1876 and the Philadelphia exhibition, which was really the, the first of the major, what, what we, what we would come to think of as world's fairs um happened happened in philadelphia and and selling cookbooks was actually a big part of all of those world's fairs which is kind of shocking but true and that's the first time that americans started to think about a national cuisine partially because they're celebrating their history they're thinking back about uh, about the centennial the way that we were thinking about the bicentennial in maine so you know they're in a framework like what does this mean like what are the things that that are are part of american cuisine if there is one uh so so you had this moment that started earlier but then there's this other thing that's going on that starts to really bubble up you know 10 or 20 years later which is products and 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 large-scale marketing and the, the marketing firms that were, you know, big food companies were just beginning to show up on the scene. And they were flour companies and baking soda companies and lard companies and uh, a lot of sort of, you know, products that, that aren't easy to differentiate, you know, so they needed marketing to make, to make them work. And they realized very early on that community cookbooks were a really good venue for for marketing and so you see national advertising companies slipping in alongside the the national alongside the local ads you know you see baker's cocoa uh, uh, and you see um uh you know the, the various flavor extracts and rumford baking soda and and you know they're and then you realize that the recipes contain those things you know, like you know, every seventh recipe has has Rumford baking powder in it or whatever. So, you know, all of that keeps going and it keeps adding. And, and 
people were also, you know, it's the, the, the beginning of food periodicals in, in the real, in, well, in America, at least is the late 1860s. And then you have this huge expansion. So people at home are reading this one national food magazine instead of just something local. So they're getting their recipes from everywhere. They're getting recipes are being pushed to them uh, that are, that are, that are, um, uh, you know, produced by individual companies. And, and, and also there, there's just this idea that there is a national cuisine. And if I have one, there's one thing I want to add to this, this like, it's not a main thing, but when I was doing research on, on California community cookbooks for my project, we were looking at, at, at Northern California, Japanese community cookbooks and, 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 uh, my uh, cataloger, uh, Mark and I were looking at these books and we were thinking, let's look for the Japanese recipes. Like how much Japanese stuff is in these books? These were books produced in the sixties and seventies. Uh, I think I have one in the late fifties, but you know, they're all Northern California books where there was a big community. And, and sure enough, we find some Japanese recipes and there are Japanese ingredients and things that they were growing there. But what really like hit me in the forehead with a two by four was the fact that there was cornbread and pumpkin pie and turkey and 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 this was like these were like fairly new communities new americans coming from japan maybe they'd been here a generation and a half or something and here they were including these things that they had somehow decided were the recipes that they needed to include in a book like this and and so instead of seeing the japanese recipes that i was looking for I, I was like, wow, here, here's the place you, you wanted to find national cuisine. Like this is where you, you look in the books that don't say American all over the front of them. You look at these books and see what people are, are, are saying, yeah, we understand this is something that we need to include. And it was really, it was really quite moving because, uh, um, and I'm, and I'm grateful that those are New England things, you know, that uh, it's, it could have been gumbo. <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming today. For those of you who uh, who joined us and um, Carl, Margaret, Don, I'm about to go eat a second dinner because I am starving now <laughs> after listening to all of this conversation. Um, once again, uh, we have a code in the chat um, for uh, you can get the uh, Maine Bicentennial Community Cookbook at 20% uh, off. Um, uh, Harvest20 is the code. So you would go to the website main200cookbook.com um, and it's Harvest20 for 20% off. Um, thank you all so much for joining us. Um, this has been such a pleasure and uh, thank you to Harvest in the Harbor, Stephanie. Um, this, was, this was a lovely conversation. So thank you all for coming. <laughs>